Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, The Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. And as you know, we're in the home stretch. This is episode 37. There are only three more episodes after this one. And I just want to give you a little warning, um, especially if you're watching. I um, believe this episode is going to be the toughest one for me personally. But as I promised you earlier, I will do my best to suck back tears. All right, let's get started. Days 145 through 146, Sunday through Monday, October 7th through the 8th, 2001. I miss life so much. You have no idea how lucky you are. Appreciate your youth and your ability to do shit, okay? Live and have fun for me. Adrian's email to a friend dated August 11th, 2001. When we arrive at UCLA, we bypass the ER and go to the pediatric floor where a private room has been assigned to Adrian. Dr. Finn, Adrian's pediatric oncologist, is there waiting to speak to us. Anya and Alex, who followed in their car, stay with Adrian while John and I step outside the room. Dr. Finn motions for a nurse to grab some folding chairs. We sit across from him. I hug myself to hold in the pain, but I can't stop myself from crying because I see it in Dr. Finn's eyes. Adrian is dying. No, 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 no. Do you want to put your sister on a respirator? He asks. I look at John, not for his approval, but for support. His vacant eyes look through me, but I feel him touch my arm. I don't know what to do. Ask questions. Need more information. Can she come off the respirator at some point? Dr. Finn shakes his head and replies, no, most likely not. Think, what would Adrian want? Can she come home on the respirator? No. A nurse hands Dr. Finn a form. I see the letters D and R. Do not resuscitate. For once, I am grateful. John always touts how important it is to be rational. I solve the problem with as much logic as I can muster under the circumstances. Number one, Adrian would not want a machine breathing for her. Number two, Adrian hates hospitals. I must get her home. Number three, I would never be able to turn the respirator off. My hand shaking, I reach for the DNR. Give it to me. I scan it, reading, if my heart stops beating or if I stop breathing, no medical procedure to restart breathing or heart functioning will be instituted. I sign on the line that reads signature of patient's representative or parent if patient is a minor and with every loop of my print slash cursive letters, I question my decision. 
I'm not giving up on you, kiddo. Not yet. On the line, relationship to parent, I write guardian slash sister. I swear I'm not. I'm going to call a hospice facility now, says Dr. Finn. I nod, stand up, and go back to Adrian's room. Sean follows. When I tell Anya and Alex I signed the DNR, the word sounds surreal to me. The four of us gather around Adrian, two people on each side of the bed. I count her breaths again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh my God, breathe. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, 14, 15. <sighs> With a shorter and quieter inhale, yet longer exhale, Adrian's breathing has slowed to four breaths per minute. Despite her slow respiratory rate, Adrian seems to be in a deep sleep like a princess in a fairy tale. Maybe I'm kidding myself. But as I stand on her left side, squeezing her left hand, I feel her spirit alive in her body, but I don't know how to reach it. I never read Adrian's English essay about death, but I saw the title, Summerland. We are saying our goodbyes, Anya, Alex, even John. So I tell Adrian, go to Summerland. It's okay. I'll be okay. We love you so much. I love you. I lay my head gingerly on her stomach. Her hospital gown absorbs my tears. I don't mean anything I say except for the part about love. I don't want Adrian to go to a mythical place called Summerland. It's not going to be okay. I'm not going to be okay. Nothing about this feels right. I can't let her die. Don't say it here. I have to get her home. Dr. Finn and his staff want Adrian to remain in the hospital because she is too unstable to travel. He says she could die in the ambulance on the way home. They don't know my girl. When Dr. Finn finds a hospice nurse at five o'clock in the morning, he sends her into the room to convince me to change my mind. An attractive blonde woman of medium stature walks in and introduces herself as Casey Klein from Trinity Hospice Care. I lean forward and drape my arms across Adrian's body as if this hospice nurse intends to do physical harm. Before Casey can argue for keeping Adrian here, I cut her off. We are taking Adrian home. She wouldn't want to be here. I understand the risk. You can't talk me out of it, so don't try. Now let's do what needs to be done and get her home as soon as possible. Without flinching, Casey nods and says, okay. Later, she tells me upon that first impression, her nickname for me was Andrea, don't fuck with my family, Wilson. I can't believe it's only been four days since Adrian came home on oxygen. That event alone felt like we had entered a foreign country without knowing the language or customs. Now we have even more things to learn and to do as we prepare to take her home in what I call a deep sleep state. 
and what the doctors won't label a coma. The first step is to put a catheter into Adrian's bladder. Two nurses ask everyone to leave the room except for me. I scoot over to the other side of the bed where I stroke Adrian's forehead and squeeze her right hand. I watch as the nurses bend her legs so her knees are facing up and I think how Adrian has never had a pelvic exam. One nurse spreads Adrian's legs apart as the other one attempts to insert the catheter. Adrian's eyes flutter open. She lifts her head, clamps her legs together, and looks at me. Make them stop, sissy. I laugh, even as the tears flow, because the nurses look like they have seen a ghost. Who knew it would take a catheter to wake the sleeping beauty? I have to go to the bathroom, says Adrian. I help her sit up. She stands on her legs, holds her IV pole, and pushes me away as she walks to the bathroom located next to the bed. Shut the door she tells me, and I do. Her voice sounds strong through the mask, and I can understand every word. The toilet flushes, and she pushes the door open. She allows me to assist her as she climbs back into bed. I throw the sheets over Adrian. The nurses look at me, and I nod. They open the door. I don't know what they were able to hear, but John, Anya, and Alex rush in. Anya has been crying, and John and Alex look like they've been fighting tears. The nurse's eyes are becoming moist. The best part, though, is when Dr. Finn walks in and sees Adrian. He stops at the door and weeps without making a sound. I look at him. I made the right decision about the respirator, about taking Adrian home. Smiling, Casey says, Hi, Adrian. I'm Casey, your hospice nurse. Adrian replies, Oh, hi. She looks around. Adrian realizes her awakening has raised the humidity in the room. She shakes her head. I don't know what all the fuss is about. I was just dreaming. Even as we all laugh, and maybe some believe they have seen a miracle, I think to myself, I know, kiddo. I knew you were still with us. Compared to the excitement in the hospital, the ambulance ride home seems dull. No one fears Adrian will die, although a medic monitors her vital signs. Adrian talks in spurts, asking questions. How long was I at St. Joe's? When did I go to UCLA? And what time is it now? As we travel northeast, almost into the sunrise, I say a silent thank you for another day with my sister. Because Adrian's respiratory rate is only six to eight breaths per minute, the oxygen order was increased from five to 15 liters per minute. Dr. Finn also sent Adrian home with a reservoir bag that attaches to her mask. When Adrian inhales, she draws in 100% oxygen from the reservoir bag. A one-way valve separates her exhaled air, which is released into the air through ports on the mask. Because of Adrian's decreased respiration and the increased prescription, the compressed oxygen tanks in our living room are no longer a viable option because they won't last. Instead, Continental Hospital Supply installs a larger stationary tank, about one foot in diameter, filled with liquid oxygen. Before doing so, a man on the phone asked me three times if we have a dryer in our garage, and I assure him we do not. After two delivery men set the tank in its place and show me how it works, they attach 25 feet of tubing, which we run from the garage, through John's bathroom, down the hallway, and into Adrian's room. I make sure it reaches into the living room as well before they leave. When I ask how long this tank will last, 
one of the men replies, hopefully five days, because that thing is heavy. Adrian stays in the living room, drinking water and juice throughout the morning. A few days ago, we had an overbed table custom made for her. John rolls it over next to the chair in front of the television. Then he adjusts the height, making it taller. We place a pillow between Adrian's head, which she cannot keep upright, and a table. I urge her to swallow liquid Tylenol for her ongoing fever, but according to Adrian, it tastes nasty. John tries to convince her to lie down, but she refuses to. Anya and Alex offer to watch Adrian so John and I can sleep. I climb into bed, close my eyes, and sleep approximately three hours. Later that afternoon, our hospice nurse Casey drops by to check on Adrian. I find it strange we, and it feels like we, not only Adrian, have been on hospice now for 10 hours. No one tries to cure your disease when you are in the hospice. You receive palliative care, such as pain medication and supportive services like oxygen therapy. I want to dislike Casey because she represents failure. Adrian and I don't give up a fight just because we're losing. We play to win. We always have. I taught her to be strong, to be a winner. And then I realized Adrian woke up. I brought her home and she is where she wants to be. Maybe I need to redefine what it means to win. I balance Adrian's pain against her fever for the rest of the evening as she lies on her bed. The methadone is easy to give to her in its liquid form and she swallows it without hesitation. However, even as her body temperature climbs to 101.4 degrees, Adrian refuses the liquid Tylenol. She pretends to take it and then lets it dribble out of her mouth. Someone might argue she had an involuntary response, but I know what she's doing. Adrian hates the taste and she won't swallow it, even when I implore her to. Finally, I soak washcloths in a bucket of ice water, putting them on her head and neck and re-dipping the cloths into the ice as soon as they absorb the heat, I cool her body down to 100.9 within an hour. I figure that is the best I can do without using medicine. For the first time ever, John and I decide to sleep in Adrian's room. We huddle in blankets on the floor, careful not to lie on the tubing that leads to the oxygen tank. In the middle of the night, we hear Adrian whispering our names. Sissy, Johnny. Our bodies stir then jerk until we realize she's okay. She wants to talk to us. We climb in bed with her. Pulling her oxygen mask down around her neck, Adrian reaches for John. She hugs him. I love you guys. John replies, but I can't hear him, for I focus on how clear Adrian sounds. She's doing this on purpose. Then she turns to me. With unexpected strength, she pulls me into her body with her thin arms and hugs me as if she is absorbing my essence. Holding me, she says, I love you, sissy. Please don't let those be her last words. Not wanting to let go, afraid of what will happen if I do, I respond, I love you too, kiddo. I love you so much. Her body relaxes and she lies back down. I put her oxygen mask on her face. Although light peeps through the blinds from the street lamp outside, I can't quite see John's face. I wonder what he is thinking. 
Is he afraid like I am? I listen to Adrian breathe and I count again. I remember something she said 10 years ago. I liked it so much I wrote it down. I love you bigger than the ocean, sissy. I love you deeper than the ocean. I love you so much, Adrian. I wish it could be me. Casey arrives in the morning to guide us through this new stage with Adrian. I worry about Adrian's fever, which hovers around 101 degrees. Casey assures me if the heat bothered Adrian, she would let us know. The first time Adrian loses control of her bladder, John leaves the room so Casey and I can change the sheets and clean Adrian up. When she urinates two more times, I realize we have to consider other options. Casey suggests adult diapers, but John points out how embarrassed Adrian would be. I think a catheter would be worse considering her reaction yesterday. Then Casey tells us to keep in mind Adrian could be in this condition for days, weeks, or even months. I finally agree a catheter might be the best way to go. It's less humiliating than a diaper and easier to clean, but I'm still not sure. Casey says we can use adult diapers until John and I make a decision. This morning, someone from Dish Network is supposed to install our satellite dishes. When the dish guy shows up, I explain to him he needs to put one of the dishes into Adrian's room, but she is very ill. I watch his eyes as he takes in the scene, the plastic tubing on the floor, the overbed table covered with medical necessities, and Adrian lying on her bed, looking like a thin, pale, former version of herself. The dish guy stops before walking into Adrian's room. Are you sure it's okay, he asks. Yes, she's resting. Look, my sister has always wanted MTV too, which is why we chose dish instead of cable when we moved. Please install it so we can turn it on for her. Okay, he says. He works as fast as he can, and when he finishes, he stops and looks at Adrian. Then he speaks to John and me. I hope she, um, gets better. Thank you so much. I usher him out the door, wondering if he has children, and knowing if he does, they will get a special hug from their daddy tonight. Not long after the dish guy leaves, Adrian sits up and begins throwing her body around as if she's boxing someone in her sleep. She's even talking, although all we can hear are gurgling noises. Afraid she will fall out of bed, I attempt to hold Adrian's arms down to calm her. Don't restrain her, Casey tells me. Rock her. Soothe her like you did when she was a baby. Casey reminds John and me Adrian's brain never lost its ability to function, so she is completely aware of her surroundings. Adrian is fighting her illness. She's fighting hard. John helps me scoot Adrian over toward the center of her bed, so I have room to sit next to her. I cradle her in my arms as best as I can and whisper in her ear, Sweetie, I'm going to sing to you. Don't laugh. I allow Adrian to lead, rocking forward and back in time with her. Ba 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 bum. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Ba 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 bum. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Ba 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 bum. No, it's not. Please don't go. I'll never leave you, but I really must say, good night, sweetheart. Good night. 
Adrian's arms relax and she says something, but I can't understand her. Yeah, kiddo, I change the lyrics. You know I do that all the time. Casey smiles. Keep doing what you're doing. It's working. Our emotion now one movement. I sing another song to Adrian. Hush, little Adrian, don't say a word. Sissy's gonna buy you a mockingbird or a hamster or a cat or whatever you want. If that mockingbird don't sing, Sissy's gonna buy you a diamond ring because that's your birthstone. If that diamond ring turns brass because we bought it at a thrift store, Sissy's gonna buy you a looking glass. If that looking glass gets broke, and that's seven years bad luck, Sissy's gonna buy you a billy goat. And if that billy goat runs away, Sissy's gonna buy you a brand new day. I wish it were that simple, kiddo. We are buying you more time. You've been approved for a special clinical trial, but you have to hang in there. I keep these thoughts to myself as I lower a now serene Adrian to her pillow. Throughout the day, she pops up whenever her brain decides to go another round with her body. Every time, I rock with her and sing silly lullabies or tell funny stories until she quiets down. I want to tell her to stop fighting, but I don't. People visit throughout the day, but John and I only allow them into Adrian's room when she isn't flailing her body around. Our home health care nurse, Tess, who spent almost every Monday and Thursday morning this summer drawing Adrian's blood, visits Adrian. The English teacher at Burbank High, who assisted and graded all of Adrian's papers, brings a gift, but doesn't go into Adrian's room. Anya and Alex are at our house throughout the day whenever they can get away from work. Jesse, John's childhood friend, ends his vacation early and drives all night from Northern California. He last saw Adrian a week ago when we were moving. He was one of the people included in that email I sent a month ago today, begging people to visit Adrian more often. Like most of our friends, Jesse has his own relationship with Adrian. He has taken her to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, even though she forgot to tell him it started at midnight. When he tried to back out, she reminded him he had promised it as a birthday present. One Halloween, in an attempt to embarrass her, he dressed up like a nun to take Adrian and her friends trick-or-treating. Standing over six feet tall, wearing his glasses, and sporting a goatee, Adrian laughed when she saw him. Sometimes, she earns extra money helping Jesse grade papers. He is a sixth grade teacher. When Jesse walks in, he finds me rocking Adrian. We told her you were coming, I say. She can't respond, but she can hear you and understand you. I leave them alone so they can talk. At 5.45 p.m., I squeeze the dropper and watch the methadone drip into Adrian's mouth. She swallows, but then she spits half of it out. As I wipe her upper lip, I smile. Something about her refusal makes me feel better because she's still in there, as stubborn as ever. She moves her lips, but again, the words are garbled. It's okay, kiddo. You don't have to take it all if you don't want to. Three hours later, Casey, who had left and then returned, recommends liquid Ativan to relax Adrian, even though she accepted her subsequent dose of methadone. 
I don't understand why Casey appears unconcerned about Adrian's fever, which has spiked to 101.7. She reiterates, if the temperature bothered Adrian, we would see it. All I can think is, doesn't your brain fry after a certain point? Thinking along the same lines, Anya and I become determined to reduce Adrian's fever after Casey leaves for the evening. I fill the bucket with ice water and grab even more rags than the night before. Anya and I put cloths under Adrian's armpits, between her thighs, and on her forehead. However, the minute they touch her skin, they seem to ignite as if Adrian's body exudes the thermal energy of the superhero Firebird, a woman capable of pyrokinesis. Undeterred, Anya and I continue the get her fever down cycle, place cloths on Adrian's body, allow heat to zap coldness, re-dip cloths into bucket, and repeat. After a while, we notice we can leave the rags on longer. Firebird is losing this fight. 90 minutes later, Adrian's temperature is 99.6 degrees, the lowest it has been in days. Exhausted but relieved, Ani and I grin. We did something useful. Casey explained to John and me, Adrian's heart rate is another sign of how hard she is fighting to stay alive. After I give Adrian her 11 p.m. dose of methadone, I use the fingertip pulse oximeter to test her pulse, which is 155 beats per minute, and her oxygen, which is 98%. She's hanging on. Stop being so selfish. Tell her she can go. I know those people visiting today are saying goodbye to Adrian. I know it, but I cannot allow myself to accept it. I refuse to. Casey said it might be weeks or even months. I can do this for as long as it takes. But is that what Adrian would want? I lean over and kiss Adrian on the forehead. Whatever you want, kiddo, I'll never leave you, no matter what? Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel. There are three episodes left and the next episode airs in two days on day 147, October 9th. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.